If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And in today's episode, I'm excited to chat with my old friend, Simon Sinek. Simon is best known for popularizing the concept of why in his first TED Talk in 2009. It rose to become the third most watched talk on TED.com with over 40 million views and subtitled in 47 languages. He's also the author of multiple best-selling books including Start With Why, Leaders Eat Last, Together Is Better, Find Your Why, and most recently, The Infinite Game. As always, Simon Sinek really doesn't need me here. He gave a fantastic interview and really talked about how these times that we're in aren't unprecedented. I was very surprised to learn his perspective on the moment that we're in and how we can all respond and the trauma that we're all going through collectively. So please enjoy my interview with Simon Sinek. To kick things off, I wanted to ask you, you know, to to talk and go deeper into the uh, the YouTube video you recently published. Uh, these are not unprecedented times. You know, we actually played it on uh, our all hands team call at Summit uh, last week, and it was really inspirational and certainly you know captures the mindset that you know we want our team to really embody. Can you please uh, maybe unpack that further for the listeners? Yeah, for sure. So it, it was a thought I shared with my own team to sort of help keep what we're going through in perspective. It was right in the early days when. There was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of panic. There's still a lot of uncertainty, but it was right in the in the, in the beginning. And I, I wanted to remind my team that in business, these are not unprecedented times. That business has faced significant challenges before that have shaken the foundations of entire industries. Take the internet, for example. The internet shook the foundations of entire industries. There's, there's no video rental stores anymore. That business is gone. 
a lot of other industries were put on their heels and forced to play defense because of the internet. Now, the difference is, is that took years to come into play, where this is very, very sudden. So absolutely, this is more sudden, this is more shocking, but it's not unprecedented. What are some other examples? Break, break it down. So the internet is a very clear one. I can think of you know, uh, Starbucks and, you know, the cafes that you used to have in your neighborhood. But please break it down. Very often what puts companies out of business is not necessarily, it's not just the, the changes around them, but it's their inability to adapt. So take, for example, the coffee shop. When Starbucks first started to rise, it was believed that Starbucks put a lot of mom and pop coffee shops out of business. The data actually is the total opposite, that when Starbucks moved into a neighborhood, that mom and pop coffee shops actually did better. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, people wanted to support the local mom and pop stores. And the other reason is Starbucks brought in customers. The ones that went out of business were the ones that couldn't adapt. So, for example, you know, prior to Starbucks, coffee shop culture in the United States was very much your college campus coffee shop with the ripped couch in it. And when Starbucks showed up with these beautiful stores, the ones who complained about Starbucks stealing their customers were the ones that still had the ripped couches. The ones that adapted were the ones that stayed in business. The same could be said about Uber. You know, an app, a taxi-hailing app, did not put taxi companies out of business. That's not what happened. Any taxi company can create an app that hails a cab. What, what is challenging taxi companies is they've had a monopoly in many cities, and now there's competition that offers a better product. And it's their inability or refusal to adapt, so instead, they're suing Uber instead of making their product better. The point being is businesses and companies and industries are constantly facing a barrage of challenges that challenge their business models. And it's the ability to adapt that's more powerful. Like, and I don't mean to diminish it, like the, the overwhelmingness of this is, is unparalleled. And for many industries, it is absolutely daunting and overwhelming and impossible to survive. But the point is, is that the, the change unto itself is not the reason that we'll go out of business. There are companies that are successfully pivoting we evolve or we die, right? And exactly. I think that, you know, what will be totally new for us is the societal shift. I watch like, you know, my friends with yoga studios who, you know, are going to not ever reopen. And then I have other friends who are yoga teachers who have 50 person classes with, you know, $20 a head every single day. They're making more money now than they did before the pandemic. So I think that that mindset is just so empowering. We hadn't put words to it, you know, because we're like ground up entrepreneurs, my little clan. We're very comfortable in very insecure or unforeseen territories. I, I think that's very true, that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, chaos and creativity are a wonderful combination. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, definitely for my organization, it's like I'm a startup again. Yeah. You know, this, this takes me back to the beginning where resources are constrained, timeframes are tight. It's existential which is what it's like at the beginning. You know, every day you're, you're fighting to stay alive. And yeah. the mindset you choose when you approach a situation like that makes all the difference, which is this is exciting versus, oh my God, we're going to die. You know, I'll give you a funny example of the difference in mindset. I was working out with a friend over FaceTime and we were doing a workout together, a particularly hard one. And we were only halfway through and I turned to her and I said, uh, I have some bad news and some good news. She said, what's the bad news? I said, the bad news is we're only halfway done. She says, well, what's the good news? I said, the good news is we're already halfway done. Yeah. Right? It's the same thing, but our, uh, it, how we choose to perceive it means it's either a long slog or it's downhill. And, you know, this is Viktor Frankl stuff. You know, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is essential reading for, for the human race. And it was he who said we cannot control the circumstances around us. All we can control is our attitude. And if we can't control the world around us, we, we can't change the world around us. We can change ourselves. 
I think that, you know, especially now in this moment, mental health is going to become a huge, huge issue. And some of us are really lucky and we wake up in the morning and, you know, we're happy, ambitious. And then there's others where the head's a haunted house, you know, and it's very difficult to find that motivation or to find that, you know, to your point, why? So I'm curious for you, when you think about that, what do you think are the postures that are going to lead to us, you know, being fulfilled, successful in this moment? Well, I think we have to first take a step back and, and talk about the mental health aspect. There's been a lot of us who've been in go mode, in, in mission mode, just go, 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 you know, because we had to be. And some of it's sort of exhilarating again. It reminds us of the, of the early days. I called a friend of mine who's in the military and I, and I sort of said semi-jokingly, you know, when, when's it going to hit me? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in, in such go mode right now. And all of my, my emotions were compartmentalized. And he basically warned me. He said it will hit you. He said, there's no such thing as compartmentalizing emotions. Every single one of us is going through a trauma right now, but we're not all dealing with it the same way and we're not all dealing with it at the same time. And for those who are in mission mode, for those who are in go mode, the odds are very high that it's, it's going to hit later, that when everything slows down, that's when it hits. And this is exactly what the military knows from combat experience, which is these troops are in go mode, mission mode, and when they come home and they're safe and they're relaxed and everything's quiet, that's when all of the trauma sneaks in. Sure. And they have huge problems with domestic violence or abuse of alcohol, abuse of drugs, self-harm, depression. PTSD, not TSD. PTS, right. But it happens way later. And so for many of us, when everything slows down and, and calms down and everybody else is sort of like adjusting and relaxing, a lot of us who've been in go mode need to be prepared that we're going to have our depressions and our and our concerns. Many of us will be short-tempered and we won't understand why. And so it's, it's, be, it's very, very important for us to prepare for that because we haven't dealt with the trauma yet. Warn our families that it's coming and please be with, there with us and do not cry alone. Do not let anyone cry alone as they're going through this. My biggest concern is with those in the medical profession who are working the front lines right now, they are experiencing the equivalent of combat medicine. Uh, they're working at a pace that they've never experienced before, an amount of death around them that they've never experienced before. It is the equivalent of combat. And so once again, I called friends in the military and said, how do you guys deal with this? And in the military, they have something called disaster mental health units, which are specialized units that deploy with doctors and nurses into combat to help support the doctors and nurses, their mental health. And this was all learned from experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan that we were dealing with it the wrong way. And so now it's standard fare that these disaster mental health units deploy. We have no such units in civilian hospitals, none. And because hospitals were largely run by numbers people, they never invested in mental health support for doctors and nurses. And now when we desperately need them, that support is just not there. We've already had one significant suicide in New York City, the head of the ER department in one of the big hospitals who committed suicide. And my fear is that there's more to come. Not only that, there's going to be a lot of burnout, a lot of people getting out of the medical profession. We know that there's already uh, a significant increase of alcohol abuse amongst uh, medical staff right now. And right now, remember, they're going to work and we're, we're being, they're being clapped to work and we're considering them heroes. That's going to stop at some point and they're just going to go back and being doctors and nurses again. And my fear is when all of the mission, mission, go, go, go stops, that's when they're going to suffer. Here's the folly. All it requires is for any governor 
to call FEMA and request disaster mental health units to be deployed to their hospitals. Really? It costs the state nothing. It costs zero tax dollars because the, the units already exist. Because we're not at war, many of them are not being used. They're just sitting at home station. And all it takes is for a governor to call and request them, and they, de and they get deployed into a hospital immediately. It takes days to get them into the hospitals. And it's so upsetting to me. Since we're, we're now two months in or more, into this and not a single governor has called them up. And it's largely because they don't know they exist. But once they know they exist, I'm begging any governor to please call FEMA, request the disaster mental health units, and they get deployed to hospitals to support the doctors and nurses that so desperately need it, all the medical staff. You know, remember, you have people who are cleaning hospital rooms who, who, who their job is more important now more than ever. They too are suffering the stress. And we have to have to help them because I fear desperately what will happen when things slow down. To your point, you know, like we are exiting this and we're going to have post-traumatic stress, all of us, especially our frontline and essential workers. You speak about infinite games and infinite mindsets and how, you know, that type of posture, that type of thinking can really help us come out of this in a powerful manner. I'd love for you to go into that a little bit and from the framework of like, you know, leadership too, you know, like whether you lead a family or a small business or a large business, you know, all of us aren't just responsible for ourselves, but for, you know, the people around us. Yeah, for sure. So it, that for my, for me, my journey began many years ago when I was given as a gift, a book by a, a philosopher named James Carse called Finite and Infinite Games. And in it, he defines these two kinds of games, finite games and infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players fixed rules, and an agreed-upon objective. Football, baseball. There's always a beginning, middle, and an end, and if there's a winner, there has to be a loser. Then there are infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players, which means new players can join whenever they want at any time. The rules are changeable, which means every player can play however they want, and the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. And it got me thinking that we are players in so many infinite games every day of our lives, games that have no finish line. There's no such thing as winning education. No one's declared the winner of healthcare or the winner of careers. And there's definitely no such thing as winning business. And yet, if you listen to the language of so many leaders, it becomes abundantly clear that they don't know the game they're in. They talk about being number one, being the best, or beating their competition. Based on what? based on what agreed upon objectives, what agreed upon timeframes, and what agreed upon metrics. The point is, is so many of our business leaders are running their businesses as if it's a finite game. They're playing to win in a game that has no finish line. They're playing to be number one in a game that there's no such thing as being number one. And even if they can truly make the argument they are number one, the answer is for now. You're number one for now. It's all temporary. And what I've learned is that when we play in an infinite game with a finite mindset, play to win in a game that has no finish line, there's a few very predictable and consistent outcomes, amongst which include the decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation. And so we have to change the way we lead. We have to change the way we run our businesses to build them for the game we're actually playing in. And you can see the, the deleterious effects. You can see the negative effects of playing with a finite mindset in the infinite game. We've seen over the past 20 or 30 years, there have been a significant rise in the finite mindset in American business over the past 30 years or so. For example, the concept of shareholder supremacy that was put forward as a theory in the late 1970s, popularized during the 80s and 90s by leaders like Jack Welch and those like him. 
where we prioritize the wants, needs, desires of an outside disinterested constituency over our customers and employees. Well, that's that's now normal. It was it's not the norm of business. It's just normal now. Which which leads to businesses having you know months of capital on their balance sheet because they've done stock buybacks and distributions and gotten all the cash off their books into their shareholders' pockets. And it's and it's because they're 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 working to build their businesses for people who don't uh, benefit from from their business or work for their business. I mean, remember, we now live in a time where if a company announces mass layoffs because they miss their 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 earnings, right? Think about that. They're still profitable. They're just not as profitable as they predicted with that arbitrary number and that arbitrary date. So they use someone's livelihood to appease Wall Street, right? And when companies announce layoffs, the stock price goes up. And when they announce increase in R&D, the stock price goes down. And if we're incentivizing our, our business leaders based on the price of the equity, well, guess what they're incentivized to do? Not invest in their companies, but rather use employees to, to help, the, help the balance sheet which is madness. Mass layoffs did not exist in the United States prior to the 1980s, the way they we, the way they exist now, you know, used on an annualized basis to balance the books. Did not exist in the United States. They were popularized in the 80s and 90s. My point being that the form of capitalism that that we experience today is largely finite-minded capitalism. It's not the capitalism that Adam Smith envisioned, nor is it the capitalism upon which this country uh, became great. It is a different form of capitalism. And so for me, discovering the concept of the infinite game was so profound because I, I've been talking about putting people before profit and leading with purpose for years. And there are many who make more money than me and, and have had more commercial success than me who call me naive or call me an idiot or anti-capitalist. That's my favorite one. But it turns out that I'm not an anti... I love capitalism. I just love infinite capitalism. I love Adam Smith capitalism. I don't like the form of capitalism that has been bastardized in the past 30 years. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made this show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. And and then how do you think that this mindset can be used in this moment? So imagine if instead of living 70 or 80 years, we lived for a thousand years. This would be like our sixth pandemic, right? Uh, and we would treat these things rather as as we'd be better prepared for them. So think about hurricanes. There are states that every year get hit by hurricanes. We, we actually have a season for them. And though they cause economic damage, and though they very often cause loss of life, we know how to prepare for them, we know how to deal with them, and we know how to clean up after them. In other words, we can mitigate the damage. So if you imagine that we all live for a thousand years, we, it would be the same thing. We would prepare for these kinds of things. And there's a difference between building a stable company and building a resilient company. Stable companies sort of get through it, make it through the other side as diminished powers, like, oh, we, we made it, right? Resilient companies make it through the other side stronger and better because of the crisis they went through. And we have, a, we have some stable companies. We, don't, we need more resilient companies. And that infinite mindset, if more companies had infinite mindsets, they would have had cash on hand to help them through these hard storms. Just like you and I buy insurance for our houses. We don't expect our house to burn down. There's a very, very small percentage that our house will burn down. But for, because of that very, very small percentage, we have insurance. And this was what happened in 2008 with the house, with, when the housing market collapsed. The actuaries did the numbers. There was like a 1% or 2% chance that the whole housing market would collapse at the same time. And because the odds were low, companies didn't prepare for it. There was literally nothing. And so when the housing market collapsed, no one was prepared, and then we went into panic mode. But if we had led with an infinite mindset, we would be prepared for these, for these kinds of times. And infinite-minded companies tend to save a lot of their money when they, when they do during the good times rather than giving it all away and leaving nothing left for, for when we hit hard times. Sure. So you look at a country like South Korea that had tens of billions of dollars of PPE and processes in place. They got hit by SARS 10 years ago, right? So they you know, had this sort of exposure to the potentialities of pandemic and, you know, and had a more long-term, you know, approach to it. You, we're here in Los Angeles where, you know, we are in the sweet spot of a big one, right? Like a 7.5 magnitude earthquake on the San Andreas Fault. We're in that sweet spot range. I'm not that well prepared for an earthquake. I don't know if you are. I don't know if our systems and our, and our society are. So I'm curious for you, have you seen examples of like cities or states or countries that, that practice a more infinite mindset than say what we're used to here in the United States? Well, in general, China plays a more infinite game. You know, America, you know, our policies are good for four years till the next election and China is playing, you know, the 100, 200,000 year plan. 
So they're much more patient and, they, and they're, they're willing to, to play the long game. There was a wonderful article in Forbes about nations that have actually managed the pandemic extremely well. Taiwan, New Zealand, Germany were some of the examples, and they were all female leaders. And so the question is, is this sort of masculine, aggressive, decisive, short-term sort of leadership, is that really helpful? Or do we need a more empathetic, patient, caring instinct in our, in our leaders? You know, it's, it's not that we need more female leaders, it's that we more, need more leaders who act like females. Women just happen to be better at that. Good leadership qualities are those qualities, empathy and patience and, and listening. And th- those are just good leadership qualities. And it turns out in a pandemic, in something sudden and difficult, it turns out that those leadership qualities have been extremely beneficial to those nations. I don't have any investors at Summit. We never took on any capital. So we own the company and we're really beholden to our community. It's like if they don't want to participate in what we do anymore, then we don't have a customer. And so it's been this really great sort of pin in the grenade in a sense to not sell out. We never said, okay, it's going to be 20,000 people at an event or like brought to you now by Cisco or whatever. Like the point is, is that we always had had that relationship. And so we're now in this point where like, we really do need the support of our community and it's there because we've never taxed them. We never harvested their goodwill to maximize our profit. And I think a lot of that starts with the why, right? Like we had a sense of purpose for what we were doing from the moment it started. Here we are 12 years later from the TED Talk, right? Yeah, 2009 is when it came out. Okay, amazing. So yeah, 11 years. I'm curious, you know, how you think about that today and and how it's changed. And then I also want to know where it came from for you. You know, like what was sort of the start start of this? It's true. I mean, you know, talking about a purpose-led business back then was like some sort of hippie thing. Now, you know, every company has a purpose statement on their website, even if they don't mean it, because, you know, that's, that's the fashion, I guess. It's become a thing, which is, which is good when it's done, when it's done right. And when it's, when it's authentic and your point about, you know, strong brands, you know, the, the, the strong brands who've invested in their community, invested in their people, they're the most trustworthy brands right now. And they're the ones who actually, I think will have a much easier job of surviving this. It's the ones who were much more short-term focused and didn't build strong brands and didn't build strong relationships with their people or their communities that are probably struggling more than the others. And you can sort of go down the list of the, the strong brands that are, that they're, they're sort of, they're doing better than their competition that, that didn't invest the same way. But having a sense of why is absolutely essential in a time like this. It's definitely benefited us because it's the only thing that's permanent. It's like the foundation of a house. You, you go through a crisis, which means half your house blew away, but the, fa- the foundation is still there. We can rebuild a new house, maybe even a shinier house or maybe the same old house, but, but you need to have the foundation. You need some sort of permanence. And what you do can change and how you do it might change, but why you do it must never change. Regardless of the political, cultural, or technological change that we're facing. You don't pivot your why. Yeah, the why must remain permanent. If you imagine a bullseye, right, and you put, you put something in the middle right? And it points out to the what. So it starts with why, goes through how, and gets to the what. A pivot means it rotates around the why. So what has to change? It's like a clock. It's like the hand of a clock. It stays fixed in the middle. It stays fixed on the why, but you can change the number. You can change what you do. But if you were to change the other way around, stay fixed on what you do, it's, it, that's not called pivoting. That, I don't know what that is. That's just some, that makes an organization unstable. You can't fix the clock hand to the number and then move the, the, the center. Um, and so pivoting is pivoting around the why. 
Like how, what's a new way we can bring our why to life? And I've seen it in the marketplace. The, the companies that have successfully, that are successfully pivoting versus those that are really struggling to pivot, the, the ones that are struggling are putting themselves at the center of the equation, which is what are we going to do to sell more? How can we make more money? How are we going to sell? You know, how are we going to get people to buy our product? Right? It's all about the what, it's all about them. The ones that are more successful right now are the ones that are putting the customer first. They're putting the outsider first. They're saying, hey guys, we have something we still think is of value. How do, how do we, what's a different way we can get this out to the world? How do we give, how do we give to people? And it changes the way in which, in which you innovate because you are much more flexible to change what you do and how you do it because there's a strong foundation upon which to build. The other way around is, is doubling down on old business models and that, that's scary. Um, if, if I just use myself as an example, most of our income came from live events. Well, that dried up pretty quick. And if I had doubled down on my old business model, I would have either A, been trying to book gigs for when this is over, or B, just saying to people, hey, can I do a keynote speech for you online? Well, there's some demand for keynote speeches online, but not a lot. And so panic would ensue. So what we did is we started from scratch. We said, okay, why do we do what we do? We have a vision of a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and return home fulfilled by the work that they do. That's the world that we want to live in. We have smart people. We have some ideas. We have all these resources. How do we advance our vision given the fact that there's no such thing as in-person anymore? And we became uh, an online content company. We now have a whole suite of live online classes. And it was really important for us to do our classes live because I preach about the human connection. And so recording classes would not have worked for us. Every single one of our classes is live. And I'm really proud of that. We have an entirely new company. We did months worth of work in a few weeks. But we did it with, we did it with absolute certainty that it was the right direction because we didn't change why we do what we do. We changed what we do to bring our cause to life. And where can the listeners and myself go and check out some of these live classes? Where can we go? And- well, that's very nice of you. Thank you. The, the classes are all at simonsinic.com and we're, and we're constantly adding more classes um, as often as we can. And it's kind of fun because we're developing a process. And for people who are trying to, to pivot, you know, this is a very unique time because our patience for imperfection is much higher than it used to be. You know, you can you can build the plane while you're flying, which is what we're doing. It can be imperfect, and the marketplace is very accepting of a, of a new imperfect product right now. Go back four or five months, and if it's not good the minute you hit the road, then then people want nothing of it. So it's a great time for, for innovation. You know, one of the things I'm just thinking about as you're talking about it is uh, the Mark Twain quote, if I had more time, I would, I would have written less. Yeah. And the why, how, what, that the why is the bullseye, the how is the how is the circle around it and the what is the circle around it. And it all rotates around the why I just think is very elegant and beautiful. And thank you. What, what an amazing thing to come to a realization of. And I want to know how you got there. So, you know, I know you were born in the UK and you lived all over the world, South Africa, Hong Kong, and, you know, grew up in the U S I know you studied cultural anthropology in college. I know like, so a lot of the things that would lead to the inputs that would have such, you know, sort of complex and unique outputs I can see emerging. Please tell us like, wh- how, how did you arrive at this? Well, I, I can tell you the, the things that happened in the months that led up to it, but the reality is it took, you know, every, every day of my life up until that day, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I, I, all the things add up to these ideas, but in the shorter term, it was pain. You know, I I lost my passion for what I was doing. I owned my own business. I owned a marketing consultancy. We had good clients. We did good work, but I didn't want to wake up and do it anymore. And I was embarrassed by that because 
you know, superficially, I was living the American dream. And so all my energy went into lying, hiding, and faking. I was pretending that I was happier, more successful, and more in control than I actually felt, which is a really dark place to be. And it wasn't until a dear friend of mine came to me and said, I'm worried about you. There's something wrong. There's something, there's something off. Did it give me a safe space to come clean? And once I came clean, it's a cathartic experience. I was able to invest all of that energy away from lying, hiding, and faking into finding a solution. There was a confluence of events. And the solution that I found was, was this, this thing called, that I called the golden circle, which was based on the biology of human decision-making. And I realized I knew what I did and I knew how I did it, but I didn't know why. And you have to have all three pieces. You have to have all three pieces. And so the why was missing. And so I became obsessed with finding my why. I learned my why. It restored my confidence and my passion to levels I'd never experienced before. Shared it with my friends. They started making life changes and invited me to share it with their friends. And people kept inviting me and I just kept saying yes. It was a totally organic journey. So, you know, I personally obviously resonate very much with your mission and message, you know, a why-based entrepreneur. I'm also, you know, liberal and I'm also a business hippie. So clearly, like a lot of these things very much resonate with me. I'm in the middle of that why bullseye. I'm curious with your, you know, partners and clients and collaborators who are from these, you know, global institutions or the military, do you find that they are equal, the same, or more receptive to these ideas? Or is this, you know, specific catnip to my set? Uh, no, I mean, the military was one of the early adopters. They found me like within a month or two of my, the first time I articulated the sense of the golden circle. I first articulated it in January of 2006. And two months later, I was at the Pentagon talking, talking to them about it. They were very much early adopters about it. And the reason is simple. It's because they're driven by service. And the concept of why, you know, is very much a service, it's, it's very much a service uh, orientation. You know, you are never at the center of your why. It's always, it's always someone else. It's always for the benefit of others. And so they absolutely resonated with it. I sort of fell in love with them. I sort of, you know, I think they're one of the most misunderstood cultures out there. You know, people think the military is what they see in the movies. That's sort of like people screaming and yelling and sort of command and control. And, you know, and there are elements of that when necessary. And it's usually under extremely stressful situations like in combat. But there's so much empathy and so much love. You know, you talk to Marines and say, what makes the Marine Corps so great? They tell you love. Remember, you and I have colleagues and coworkers. They have brothers and sisters. Sure. I've hugged more people in uniform than I've ever hugged people in suits. I've cried with more people in uniform than I've ever cried with in suits. And I've sat in, in a briefing listening to a general give a, give a briefing and sat there and cried. I've never cried when a CEO gave a speech ever. Sure. And so there's much more humanity because their job is existential. Their job is about life and death. And so you, you find these remarkable relationships and this remarkably empathetic form of leadership that is much rarer to find in the business world. In fact, you only find it at the best-led companies. The best-led companies and the best-led military units are very, very similar. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, 
And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I resonate and I align with all the values that you're espousing. I want to know though, like where are my blind spots? I know that you don't know me well enough and we don't work together, so you can't tell me specifically, but I'm curious when you start working with organizations and you see that this is a group of people that, you know, clearly resonates with this and wants this, but can't necessarily get all the way there. What are the roadblocks that you often find that we need to address? Some of the more common ones are uh, when the senior leaders attempt to do everything themselves. You know, there's a lot of really great thinking at the front lines and engaging others besides the top to help solve problems is a big deal. People at the front, this is David Marquet's work, you know, he talks about people at the front line, people at the bottom of the organization have all the information and none of the authority, and people at the top of the organization have all the authority and none of the information. And the opportunity is not to push information up, it's to push authority down. And so I see this a lot, you know, the, the most, most of the, the places where stuff breaks in companies in middle management, it's because the people at the top might be all wonderful and fantastic and, you know, well-intentioned. And you go talk to the people in the front lines and it's a complete mess and disaster and they don't trust management and you wonder what's happening in the middle. And it's not because middle management is inherently wrong or bad. It's because we don't teach people how to lead. And so we tend, what we tend to do is take our high performers and promote them into positions of leadership. Well, just because someone's a good salesperson doesn't make them a good sales manager. You know, when we're junior, we have to be really good at our jobs. And eventually we get promoted into a position where we're now responsible for the people who do the job we used to do. But nobody teaches us how to do that. 
And so that's why we get managers and not leaders, because I do know how to do your job better than you. That's what got me promoted. Too bad that that's not your job anymore. Your job is no longer to make a product. Your job is to take care of the people who make the product. Your job is no longer to take care of the customer. Your job is to take care of the people who take care of the customer. And we don't teach people that skill set. We train them how to do the job, but we don't train them how to lead. And so usually things break in the middle because when people are becoming leaders, we're giving them leadership authority. We haven't taught them how to do the skill that we've asked. You know, I'm just curious for you now, like, you know, you're a young guy, like what, what does success look like for you? What, what are the things that you want to manifest for yourself now? Well, I think of thing, I think of my career like an iceberg, right? When I was very, very junior in my career, I had a vision of the world that didn't exist. In other words, I could see an iceberg. I could imagine an iceberg below the ocean, but nobody else could see it. And so I started, I started working and all of a sudden you saw this tiny little bit of iceberg sticking up as I started to work. And the early adopters, some of the people around me, I could point to that little bit of iceberg and they'd be like, oh, oh, I can see what you can imagine. I can see what's probably below the ocean. And they would work with me. And then all of a sudden more and more and more iceberg would show until people would say, wow, look at, look at, look at what you've achieved. But if you ask me, my answer is it's just the tip of the iceberg. So when I was right at the beginning of my career, people would say, wow, congratulations. And I would say, just the tip of the iceberg. And then halfway through my career, people would say, amazing what you've done. And I'd say, tip of the iceberg. And my answer now is the same. It's the tip of the iceberg. You know, I don't tend to look at what I've done. That to me is all in the past. What I look to is all the stuff that I still have yet to do. And that is a massive, a massive, massive amount of iceberg that's still below the ocean. Again, I want to create a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and return home fulfilled by the work that they do. And that is not the world we live in. And so I still have a tremendous amount to do. And so to, for me to measure success, the problem is, is that my vision will not come to life in my lifetime. It will not come true in my lifetime. So how do you measure success if you'll never actually see your vision come to life? So the only way to measure it is in milestones and, and momentum. And so for me, momentum is everything. And so I care about slightly different numbers than, than other people. So for example, on Twitter, when everybody's obsessed with how many followers they have or how many likes they get, I'm much more interested in the, in the retweet because I'm more interested that I'm putting out something of value that somebody else thinks is valuable enough for them to put it out on their feed that's momentum. That means my work can live on without me because it's not about people liking my work. It's about other people using my work to advance their own work. And that's really important to me. I don't care about New York Times bestseller status because it doesn't actually mean anything. And so what I'm more interested in is that my books sell for many, many, many years without any aid of any kind of marketing or PR because it means people find value in them and they want to hand the book and give it to someone else or recommend it themselves. Those are the kinds of numbers. So I, I tend to be much more interested in momentum, in trend data rather than absolute data. That, that's how I measure success. And so when you ask me how I define success right now, it hasn't changed. And I'm still looking for ways to, to create momentum. And I'm still looking for ways for the ideas to spread without me. Yeah. And you, and I think that your work has been pretty perennial, you know, like it's, it's, it's only gaining relevancy, you know, over time, especially in this, in this moment. Thank you. Um, I want to know what, what, is there anything in particular that you, you love most about your work? I mean, it, it, it's, I, I, I mean, it's a hard question, right? I, I, I love my work. I guess if I didn't love it, I wouldn't do it. I mean, when you ask what I love most about it, it is, it's, a, it's a very special feeling to produce something that has a genuine and positive impact in the life of somebody else. 
you know, it's an amazing feeling to have a stranger come up to me on the street and say, thank you for a book or for a talk they saw or for an article they read, you know, to know that I'm, I'm in service to those around me is, is everything. And I, I would rather live a life of service um, than anything else. And so I guess the thing that I love most is, is that intense joy of, of, of having the opportunity to serve. It sounds a little cliched and cheesy, but it, it really is such a powerful feeling. I guess thinking about, you know, wrapping up th- this, this interview, and I've really, really appreciated having you on. I want to know, you know, here we are, we just got six weeks to sit alone by ourselves in our houses in the sensor with our, you know, a few friends. Have you had any profound revelations that have come your way in these, in these last six, eight weeks? I, I think like any entrepreneur to discover how you react in crisis, you, you don't actually know until it happens, right? I'm proud of my team and I'm proud of the company we've built, how we all rallied together and how we stay focused on where we're going. And it was difficult and it's hard and it continues to be difficult and hard. And our mindset is, is an infinite one. Like it's, it's kind of what, uh, one of the things that I think is great about a crisis is it sort of, it reveals it's the crisis is the great revealer, right? It's the revealer of personalities and it's the revealer of truths. And you realize the folly in before crisis, how we're competing against other companies. Because right now, there is no company competing against another company. It doesn't exist. Everybody's competing against themselves. They're trying to make, they're trying to survive and make whatever they're doing better or work. And that's how business should work always, that you can look to your other worthy rivals to discover what they're doing so that their strengths reveal to you your weaknesses. And that's, it's kind of like, this is how business should always run. We should only compete against ourselves. Beating, trying to beat another company, it's stupid. That's why we're not doing it right now, because it's stupid. You know, we, when, when, when times are good, we have the luxury to do stupid things. So I think the thing that I, I've learned most and the thing that's- <laughs> That's a great quote. When times are good, we do have the luxury of doing stupid things. It's true. It's true. I mean, you know, we buy stupid things. We spend money on stupid things. We make stupid decisions because, yeah, it's good. Times are good, you know? I think the thing that's been revealed for us most is like a lot of the things that I preached, I practiced, and we built a company based on why and based on circle of safety and based on on the infinite game. And when push came to shove in, in the moments of crisis, it turns out it was all the right thing to do. So I'm proud of that. I love that. And I agree with you. You know, we're always, you know, competition is against irrelevance. That's your competition. It's, it's that, you know, whether or not you are creating something relevant for other people or not. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's certainly been, you know, philosophy that, that I've aligned with my whole professional career. Can't get lost in the sauce about competition or what someone else is doing. Mostly, I would think, because the thing that you're seeing today is the thing they were thinking about three years ago. Yeah. So if you're obsessing about what your you know, competitor in your mind is doing in the present moment, it means that they're going to smoke you in the future because they're on to the next thing while you're on to their last thing. And we've seen it happen so many times. You know, the, the Boeing was so unnerved by Airbus. The 787 had delay after delay after delay because every time they had meetings at Boeing, they kept saying, instead of sticking to their own strategy of what they wanted to build, they kept saying, what's Airbus doing? What's Airbus doing? And then we saw what happened when Boeing responded to financial pressures to make numbers. They actually made an aircraft that wasn't, that wasn't safe to fly in the 737 MAX, which is astonishing. Ugh. And that's what, that's, what, that's what competition gets you. It puts this overwhelming pressure to, to, to do expedient things instead of the right things. I, and I think one of the things we have to remember in the difference between the finite game and the infinite game, in the finite game, it's the, it's the game that ends. 
but the players continue to live on. So for example, when the Red Sox play the Yankees, you know, when the game ends, the game ceases to exist, the game is over, but the players continue to live on. The Yankees and the Red Sox still exist, you know? In the Infinite Game, it's, it's different. It's the players that cease to exist, but the game continues with them or without them. Circuit City doesn't exist anymore, but the game of business and the game of electronics sales continues without them, you know? The players disappear, not the game. It's a totally opposite paradigm. And that's why the objective is not to win because there is no end to the game. The objective is to stay in the game. That's the objective. Well, Simon, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I really appreciate your work. I'm uh, a big fan of, of your early stuff, the, the infinite game, the work you're doing today. And, and thank you. I mean, I mean, we, we really have just with my own company, with my own team, been, been referencing your work it, as recently as this week, as we you know, think about how we need to innovate and yeah. grow our way out of this, right? Out of this, this new, this new paradigm that we find ourselves in. And I'm certain that, you know, there's going to be plenty of other people that have heard this podcast that would love to learn more resources. I imagine um, those are all at simoncynic.com, correct? It's all there. Yeah. And, and Jeff, I can't thank you enough. You know, we've known each other for many years. You were an early adopter of my work and invited me into the Summit family very early on before a lot of people knew what I was doing. I'm a big fan of yours and, you know, I've loved you for many years. I'm really grateful to, to come and chat with you. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is The Art of the Hustle. See you soon. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.